It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. My guest is Gary Talley. He's one of the founding members and lead guitarist of the Box Tops, performing at the Suncoast Showroom this Saturday, February 15th at 8.30. For ticket information, go to suncoastcasino.com. And for everything about the Box Tops, go to boxtops.com. And you can also follow the Box Tops and Gary on Facebook. So, Gary, welcome to the show. Thanks, Aaron. You have an Glad it, to be here. Absolutely. I appreciate it. You have an interesting background because there was originally, before the Box Tops and there, there obviously there's big hits involved with the, the box tops, including Cry Like a Baby and The Letter. But before mm-hmm. the box tops, there was another group that you were involved in. Tell us just a little bit about that. Well, it was actually the same guys that were in the box tops. The only thing is, when we first started the band, it was called the DeVilles, and it was a local Memphis garage band, sort of. There were, there were hundreds of them. And, uh, I was the oldest guy in the band at 19, and Alex <laughs> was 16, and uh, the other guys were in between. And uh, what happens? What happened is, after recording the letter, we re- we discovered we were going to have to change our name because the Devilles was already a trademark name. And uh, our manager, a guy named Roy Mack, who was a, a DJ and a program director at a top 40 station in Memphis. The way I remember it, he thought of the name. I don't think anybody in the band thought of it. And all of a sudden it was like, well, you're going to be the box tops now. And we said, well, okay. And then <laughs> we didn't particularly like that name. But then in a few weeks, the letter went to number one, and we said, well, okay, I guess it's an all right name, man. Absolutely. It's interesting that even though you were the oldest guy in the group when it was the DeVilles, you weren't old enough to realize there were legalities involved with trademarks or trade names. Right. Yeah. I didn't have any idea. It's amazing. The Box Tops as a group had these hits at a very small frame of time. What I mean by that is that it wasn't spaced out yeah. over decades or even years. Why is that? What do you account for that? Why was there such a number of hits in a, such a short period of time? Well, basically because we didn't stay together very long. So, <laughs> And, I mean, we had hits because we had great songs. Mainly, we had great songs. We had great songwriters writing for us, and Alex had a great voice, and I think that's the main thing. We had hits because we had good songs and a great singer, and we only had did it in a space of three years because... At the end of three years, Alex and I were the only original members in the band. That would be in February of 1970. We started in 67, and we were tired of being on the road, and our manager was cheating out of, out of cheating us out of a lot of our the money we were supposed to be getting, and we were exhausted. And Alex wanted to do his own thing and write his own songs, and... Uh, I didn't want to be in the band with a bunch of new guys without Alex. I thought it would be kind of a a fake deal. And uh, so I quit the same time Alex did. 
And yet, obviously, the group, or at least the name with a couple of key people, are together still. So at some point, you, you went out on your own and then decided, especially in the last couple of years, to reform the group. And I think it was, was it last year or the year before was the 50th anniversary of the song? I'm trying to remember. Well, that would have been 2017. 2017, two years ago, right, or almost three, yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, that, that's amazing that a song can have that type of endurance. I don't know if that's the word, but just the fact that it's still around and still played. Yeah, it is pretty amazing. Do you attribute it to anything in particular in terms of the the nature of the song, or was it just something that people always know? And we're talking about the letter. Well, I'm, it's just a song that's easy to remember. I mean, so many people remember it, and when we play it, they sing along with it. And In fact, about every time I meet somebody and somebody mentions the song, they'll start singing it. So everybody that was listening to music in 1967 seems to remember that song. Are you amazed by that, or are you kind of jaded by it at this point? Well, no, I'm still kind of amazed by it. <laughs> it just seems interesting that how music, just from a psychological point of view, that music sticks in people's minds. Certain songs oh, yeah. stick in people's minds. And yeah. I don't know if it's that they associate it, as you just indicated earlier, with a certain point in their life, or whether it's just the tune itself or a combination of that. I haven't been able to figure out. I don't know if you've given any thought to it or not. Well, I, I, I wish I could find it, but I read somewhere where people remember the songs especially that were important to them like when they were like between 16 and 18 years old. Teenagers. Like everybody, remember, even when they're 90, they remember the songs that were popular in those years of their life. I don't know why. Well, it's similar, to the, similar to the big band music where people who were uh -huh. teenagers at that time remember Glenn Miller and other mm -hmm. families and specific songs uh, from that era. Yeah. So yeah, yeah that's yeah. A, it's a good point. When the group got together initially, whether it was the DeVilles or later on the Box Tops, was there a conscious decision to go a certain way because you were considered <clears throat> blue-eyed soul in a sense, but was, there, was that a conscious decision or was that just named, were you named that after the songs came out? Well, I think that was a combination of two things. I think it was Alex's voice, and our producer, Dan Penn, was a, a Muscle Shoals R&B blues guy, you know. That's the kind of songs he wrote, and that's the way he sang. And he was a great singer himself. And I think Alex's voice fit right into that style perfectly. So I think those are the two main factors. And plus the whole, I mean, the band grew up in Memphis, and that's the kind of music we were all listening to. Tell us a little bit about that milieu at that time, Memphis. And you, you mentioned the studios as well. What was it like to be part of that mix at that time where you're together with all kinds of different musicians and singers and, and the Memphis sound, in essence? Well, it was really exciting because, um, I mean, I loved that R&B music that was coming out of the stacks. Our studio was called American. And and Stax was, uh, you know, Otis Redding and 
Sam and Dave and Carla Thomas and Eddie Floyd and that kind of thing was just so um, influential to well all all around the world actually but especially you know in Memphis and our local band that we saw that was our neighborhood band was Booker T and the MGs Green Onions yeah yeah, and they were the rhythm section on all of that stack stuff with Steve Cropper and, and Duck Dunn and Al Jackson and Booker T. Jones. So they were our local heroes and uh, lived in the same part of town and and half the band went to the same high school that Bill and I did, Bill Cunningham, our bass player. Right. This may be an, I don't know if it's a question that can be answered, but was the Memphis sound in that milieu that you were in, was it a combination of the talent, both the writers and the musicians and the singers, was it a combination of that and the, for want of a better term, the equipment or the studio, the physical studio itself, or was it one or the other, or was it a, or was it a combination of both? Well, I don't think the physical studio had anything to do with it. I think it was the kind of music that was around us at the time and the singers and the writers, the stuff they were doing. And uh, it could have been done anywhere. It just happened to be done in Memphis. The reason I asked you the question, though, Gary, is that there are studios known for a particular sound. And I don't mean from a musical standpoint. I mean more from a technical. As an example, Capitol Records has a unique sound because of the tunnel system underneath the the building and there's other studios well, that yeah. have that kind of sound or acoustics i yeah. guess is the word yeah but but i i don't think that was a huge factor i mean there wasn't any particular sound of every studio doesn't have its own unique sound a lot of them sound the same some of them have a unique sound and but most of the uniqueness of the sound doesn't come from the equipment or the room it comes from the players and the singers. And it just happens to be that in Memphis you had that combination. Yeah. Interesting. You come from a musical background. What I mean by that is your mother was a, a church pianist and your father yeah. played guitar as well. So when you were growing up, that was around you. Did that help shape you? Oh, definitely. Well, actually, music and going to church were the two biggest things in my life uh, and uh, my brother and I sang in the, the youth choir and my mother played piano and my dad sang bass in the choir and the whole church community we did I mean most of the activities we did and socializing were, were with people from the church and then you know the gospel music was a big the big factor, and uh, so it, uh, and my parents were both sang at home and played together all the time, and so I thought everybody did that. I thought singing and playing music was just as much a part of life as talking and eating dinner and going to school, you know, it was just a natural thing, I thought. And then you found out otherwise. Yeah, it wasn't until later that I found out everybody didn't know how to do that. Did you ever think about recording a gospel album? 
You mean the band or me personally? Either way, just because of your background growing up and getting exposed to it. Not, not seriously. I mean, some, you know, one of our songs that we recorded in the box top was I Met Her in Church, which was very gospel-y. And, uh, but that's the only thing that we've recorded uh, that had a, a really gospel sound to it. Right, so at least you had the, the song represented as opposed to a, a complete album. Yeah. When you were working in Memphis and growing up in that field, were there one or two musicians that influenced you that you credit for your sound or your development as an artist? Well, there were more than one or two. There were, I mean, in Memphis, there were two guys, and Steve Cropper with Booker T and the MGs was one of them. And the other was a guy named Reggie Young, a guitar player who played on so many hit records uh, out of Memphis. And uh, those two guys were my biggest influences. And I didn't even know their names at first. I just knew that I liked what they what was on the records. And later I found out who did it. Uh, but then there were people like Chet Atkins and Dwayne Eddy and The Ventures and all that were big influences on me also. So when you became well-known through the box stops, particularly, did you get a chance to meet some of these people that influenced you where you had not met them before? Oh, yeah. I got to meet almost all of them. Nice. Uh, and got to be good friends with some of them, too. That was a big... Uh, it was a great thing. I got to be friends with Reggie Young, who was my guitar idol and mentor, and he he played sitar on electric sitar on Cry Like a Baby, our second big hit. It's almost coming full circle, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, and James Burton, you know, who played with Elvis and Ricky Nelson and mm -hmm. all these other people. I got to meet him. He was one of my heroes. Uh, and Scotty Moore, who played guitar with Elvis and, uh, you know, in the beginning. And, uh, you know, I got to meet a lot of those people even got to meet Jimi Hendrix later. Oh, there's a there's a touchstone of a generation right there. Yeah. Well, let's take a break. My guest Gary Talley is one of the founding members and lead guitar of the Box Stop. They're performing at the Suncoast Showroom this Saturday, February 15th at 8:30. For ticket information, go to suncoastcasino.com and for everything about the Box Stops, go to boxstops.com and you can follow Gary and the group on Facebook. We'll be right back. We'll be back with more Talk About Las Vegas with Ira in just a moment. Aviator One in a holding pattern until the return of baseball in 2020. Your Las Vegas Aviators AAA affiliate of the Oakland Athletics had an amazing inaugural season at the new Las Vegas ballpark. Great new food choices, a beautiful club level, bark on the berm dog nights, fireworks nights, and family fun nights. Don't miss a minute of the action when the Aviators return to the Las Vegas ballpark in 2020. Season tickets are on sale now at AviatorsLV.com. Now let's get back to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. 
Welcome back. I'm talking with Gary Talley. He's one of the founding members and lead guitarist of the Fox Tops, performing at the Suncoast Showroom this Saturday, February 15th at 8.30. For ticket information, go to suncoastcasino.com. And for everything about the Box Tops, go to boxtops.com. And you can follow Gary on Facebook and the group on Facebook. Gary, what was in the decision-making process to bring the Box Tops back together again? Well, it was, I think it was in, in 96, we had been broken up for 20-something years. Well, 26 years, actually, I guess, 26 or 27 years. And uh, our bass player, the original bass player, Bill Cunningham, he, it was his idea, and he started calling everybody, and he called, you know, Alex Chilton, the original lead singer, and me and Danny Smythe and John Evans, the other two guys. And um, this was probably 97 by the time we actually got together. But but his idea was to go into the studio in Memphis and and just record some songs. We didn't have any plans to stay together or actually do any live dates at all. And... Um, I was actually surprised that that Alex said he would do it because Alex had been doing his own thing, you know, and he had said things about the box tops that made me think that, well, maybe he didn't think it would be that much fun to do it again. Uh, but he did, so uh, we went in and recorded these songs and we did an album that we called The Box Tops Hair Off. And... Alex didn't trust any American record labels, and so we uh, wound up doing a deal with a small label in France called Last Call, and a guy named Patrick Matei, who Alex had worked with before. And uh, so the album never came out in the States at all. It was only released in France and may have been distributed in Western Europe a little bit, but uh, nobody ever heard it here, and I don't think many people heard it in France either. <laughs> so it's a, it's a trade-off. He, he went with a record label he trusted, but at the same time, the, the distribution wasn't there. No. Interesting. Well, you've been busy, too. Besides performing, you, you do a lot of writing. Yeah, I, I started writing. I wrote a few instrumental things years ago, but I really started writing when I moved to Nashville in 81, because everybody does it there. It's just, um, and there are so many, it's just, it seems like every musician is also a songwriter. So uh, I started doing it, and I had a few songs recorded by other people, but not any big hits or anything, but um, still hoping for one someday. Well, the fact that you keep at it is the important aspect of it. Yeah. Nashville. Yeah. And, and Nashville has its own sound as well. So you had Memphis, you have the Memphis sound, and then you have the Nashville sound. Yeah. And the guy that got me to move to Nashville in 81 was Chips Moman, who owned the studio where we recorded in Memphis. And he also produced our last album, and he produced Soul Deep, which was our last hit single in 69 and he produced uh we had a couple of singles after that but they didn't really do much 
so Chips got me to move to Nashville in 81 and started using me on guitar on other people's records like Tammy Wynette and Willie Nelson and Waylon and uh, Billy Joe Royal and a few other things. Well, those are pretty good names to be playing behind, so yeah, that makes sense. If you had your druthers, since you mentioned Tammy Wynette and Nashville, do you see yourself as an individual artist going towards country music at all, or do you like to remain in the pop world? Well, I don't think of myself mainly... I don't think my voice is a is suited to country music as much as it is to like blues and R&B and rock. I just don't, I don't feel as comfortable singing country music. And I, and I think my voice is not one of those country sounding voices. I don't know how to describe it, but it's a different sound. Yes. It's definitely a different genre, but could you see yourself writing country music then from the writing perspective? Well, yeah, I have written, country music and I had a song recorded by Keith Whitley that was on a platinum album and uh, but that was in the 80s and, and country music now is a totally different thing and uh, I really don't like it nearly as much as the older country stuff. It seems to be more I won't use the word cosmopolitan it's more commercial I think than yeah. it used to be as well and a lot of the songs are kind of gimmicky, and they're not, the lyrics quality is not like the older ones were, and uh, so I'm not, the later country music is not my favorite thing. Did you get a chance to see that series on country music that Ken Burns did? Uh, I haven't seen every episode, but I, I don't remember how many episodes there were, actually, but I think I saw... I know I saw three, and maybe there's one or two more that I haven't seen yet. It's a pretty I think it's comprehensive. Great. I love it. it is. It's a pretty comprehensive look at the roots and evolution of country music over the decades, and just yeah. you you realize how much talent and how much I use the word soul is in country music that a lot of people may not realize. So I, I recommend yeah. that documentary to people. As well. Oh yeah, it's fascinating. I love well. I love all I can burn stuff, but that one especially I really enjoyed, and uh, I learned a lot of things I didn't know. And I've always been a big fan of people like Johnny Cash and Loretta Lynn and Willie Nelson and Merle Haggard and people like that. And Tammy Wynette, who you played and for. Tammy Wynette, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. How often do you get into, uh, because you tour with the group, how often do you get a chance to come into Las Vegas? Well, it seems like we make it about, usually we make it once a year. We, we, we have a gig in Las Vegas. I don't, I think we had one last year. I forget now, but uh, just about, just about once a year on average. And Part of your year is devoted to touring, and part of it is to writing. Or how do you do, how do you work that out? Because you also teach guitar too, correct? Yeah. Well, well, we I, I teach guitar and and write songs and play in some bands around Nashville. But whenever the box tops work all year round, but of course it's it's busier at certain times of year, but. And we don't, in 2017, we did a big tour, 
called the Happy Together Tour with the Turtles and the Association and Chuck Negron and the Calcials. It was really fun. But we don't usually do those extended tours. We just go out um, mostly on weekends and all through the year. And uh, we're in Florida now, and we have four dates in Florida. So we're down here for a little bit of only 10 or 11 days. But uh, we usually just go out on weekends. Do you enjoy the travel part of it? I know I've talked to many people over the years that they they like the performing, but they don't like the traveling part. I don't like flying as much as I used to. It's just kind of a pain in the butt uh, dealing with airports and delays. And I like going different places, and I like traveling overall, but flying is much more complicated and hassle. Yeah, it's more exactly. of a hassle than it used to be. Did you ever miss a gig because of a plane delay? Yes. The only one I can remember missing was after we had gotten back together. It's in the, in the 2000s somewhere, early 2000s. We, half the band missed a gig. I missed it. All the guys from Nashville missed the gig. And, uh, Bill Cunningham, the bass player, lives outside of Washington, D.C. He made the gig, and so did Rick Levy, who is our manager and rhythm guitar player. They made the gig, but three of us didn't make the gig. So they had to do a gig with just two guys, like rhythm guitar and bass and no drums and keyboards, and... I sing a lot of the songs, and I wasn't there, so they had to sing songs that they weren't used to singing, and um, they pulled it off somehow. (laughs) (laughs) That's true prose. I missed gigs with other people, but that's the only box top gigs I ever missed because of the flight. Well, the the fact that they could pull it off, those are that they're pros. Obviously, they're able to do that. Yeah, yeah, they did it. Are you surprised by the reactions of some fans? For example, you may have uh, people that saw you 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and then at the show they'll come up to you and say, I saw you perform at X 10 years ago. I saw you perform at Y 20 years ago. Do you get those kinds of fans? Oh, yeah. We get people saying they saw us perform 50 years ago. So it's quite you get the, the generational spectrum there. So it's fascinating, I would imagine, to you to come up against people that listen to you again, as we talked about in the beginning, where the songs you recorded had an imprint in their mind because they were at a certain age. Yeah, and one thing that's really uh, makes me feel great, and uh, and the rest of the guys in the band too, is that every time we do a show. Uh, Vietnam vets will come up and say how the letter was one of the songs that meant so much to them when they were in Vietnam because that was in 67 and um, it really was an emotional thing for a lot of people and you get that feedback on almost every concert then we sure do it's very consistent yeah. and I, I would think for you and the guys in the band it's 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 very satisfying it is, yeah. Because, it, again, it, it reinforces the impact of a song and a group on people 
depending on where they were at a certain point in time, which is how we started yeah. the conversation. Well, I think that's a great way to end it. My guest has been Gary Talley. He's one of the founding members and lead guitar of the Box Tops, performing at the Sunco Showroom this Saturday, February 15th at 8.30. For ticket information, go to suncoastcasino.com. And for everything about the Box Tops, go to boxtops.com. And you can follow Gary and the whole band on Facebook. Gary, thanks for being on the show. Well, thanks a lot, Ira. It's been fun talking to you. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Yeah, be Las Vegas. Anything you want us to be.